As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. Hello friends. First the thank yous, then I'm going to tell you something I'm doing tomorrow, which is very nerve wracking for me, but it's inspired by our patrons. Emma Walterton. She's one of our new ones. Leanne Nind, Ariana Frost, April Hardy, Amber Wolf, Amber Wolf. That's how they'd say it in Germany. Stunning, huh? Casey Parrish, Sue Clinic, Annette Baldi, Linda Newman, Kylie Marie, Rachel DeMayo, Jude's just Judes. Love that, Judes. Rick Cavan, Kari Yu, Denise, Fiona Dunkerton, Sue Abbott, 
Penny, Tanya, Bernadette Elliott. Thank you so much to you and all of our patrons. And just because of you and your support and encouragement and the confidence that it brings, I am actually going to university tomorrow. Yes, I'm starting a Masters of Media so that I can be a better podcaster. And I think that's amazing. I never thought I would do anything like that. And I'm quite nervous. I'm going to be one of those old ladies at university. Remember them? They were so annoying, weren't they? They were the ones who were just click clacking away on their expensive laptops down the front and they always finished everything early and they asked so many questions. Well, I'm, I will have an expensive laptop. I'll be real with you about that. But apart from that, probably nothing else (sighs) because I've never finished anything early and I hate the people who ask all the questions because I want to go home. But I am going to uni. I I never even finished the first time because I just failed and quit. But I'm back, baby, so that I can be a better podcaster. That is because of my passion for this podcast and your passion for this podcast and so that we can keep helping people like today's guests tell their stories. And that's pretty amazing, isn't it? And you guys want to hear them and support them and it's just one big amazing circle of good people. Thank you so much for supporting us and helping us to keep doing it and hopefully keep doing it better and better. If you are in a position where you could become a patron, you can just go to patreon.com forward slash Aust True Crime Pod. That's A-U-S-T True Crime Pod and sign up for five or two dollars American every month. So with that, let's get on with the show. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. When people say, how do you cope and blah, 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 and like you should have ended up against the wall or whatever, and I said, we got around it by saying we had two lives. We had a life with Kim, Graham, Bob and myself, and now we've got a new life where it's just Graham, Bob and myself. So you, you've got your two lives, and you know, so you're not going to forget one or the other. And we had to cope with that because otherwise, yeah, we would have all committed suicide, I think, or done something. But we just said we've got a new life and we're going to just concentrate on that. Many of you asked to hear from former New South Wales homicide detective Belinda Neal again after learning about her experience investigating the DeGrucci family murders. Belinda is now a passionate advocate for fellow sufferers of PTSD and another of the cases that features heavily in her public speaking and in her book Under Siege is that of Aubrey teenager Kim Meredith. Later in this episode, we'll hear from Belinda about the investigation and about how meeting Kim's parents, Bob and June, changed her life. But first, we get to meet the Merediths ourselves. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Now living in Perth, Bob and June and their two teenage children, Kim and Graham, were living what sounds like an idyllic life in Albury in 1996, rewarding careers they still enjoyed, 
fun social lives and kids on the verge of adulthood who seem to have pretty good heads on their shoulders, even if young Graham still got up to the odd bit of mischief every now and then. Unbelievably, a five-minute walk, a friend who took a wrong turn and a chance meeting with a stranger would end it all. Before we get to that fateful night in 1996, Bob Meredith tells us about his daughter, Kim. A typical 19-year-old. Did well at school, loved music. Originally, when she finished high school, she wanted to go on with music. But that would have meant leaving Albury, either coming south to Melbourne or up north to Sydney for a music college. So she took a year's break, um, gap year, the kids called it, mm-hmm. not knowing what she wanted to do. So at that stage, I'd um, done a lot of overseas travel and had a lot of frequent flyer points. So I said, OK, if you're having a gap year, you're off to Europe. I want you to see the world. How good are you, Dad? OK. And she got excited about that. I said, but there's one condition. Mum's going with you. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think the beauty of that was that, um, as June said, um, uh, we left as mother and daughter, we came back as mates. No, oh, how lovely. Actually, my mum and sister did a similar thing, mm. yeah. Wonderful. Um, so where'd you go? Um, London, Paris. <clears throat> and then Kim went to Sweden by herself to meet up with a girl from school that was doing exchange student Oh, so, yeah. wonderful. How mm. long were you gone? We were gone a total, I think, of three weeks. Gosh. But then Two and Kim and stayed weeks. on. Yeah. She found herself a job in London um, pulling beers. Of course. And so June came home and left her there. And then With Kim, my sister. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but then she moved. She was a living. It was a living job. Had a few hassles there um, with the girls she was living in with. And when she said, I've had enough, I'm coming home. Back to mum and dad's in Albury. What was she doing at uni? Uh, she hospitality. <clears throat> Business management hospitality. And working at the pub in town. Yep. Yeah. She earned her play money. This is 1996 and it just, gosh, so relatable to me. Mm. I grew up in Toowoomba, so this is just everyone I knew. This mm. is our story. Yeah. Apart mm. from the trip to Europe, by the way, Dad. <laughs> but Really, really relatable story to me. She's got her old school friends and that in mm-hmm. town. Oh, she also had one day a week in an office. Well, she worked with where I, the company I was running. We gave her a, you know, a job uh, filing stuff and, you know, the, all of the shit work. <laughs> <laughs> That's all but right. But that was, you know, pocket money for her again. Yeah. And, uh, and she, had, she worked hard on my dad. So it's. it's um, so her work, her studies, and she was doing grade eight piano gosh a very hard worker mm, yeah yeah so i'm afraid we have to get to march in 1996 so she knocked off work march uh 22nd was it uh 23rd 23rd well she worked the 22nd yeah yeah and she that was a Friday off. night. It was yeah. the morning of the 23rd, yeah. yeah. Friday night she knocked off work and uh, she had some friends who were in another pub across town. Yeah, previously to that, she uh, before she went overseas with mum, she'd moved in with a bunch of her old schoolmates, um, 
about six of them in the house, wasn't mm. there? Six or eight in Wilson Street. Then, which went overseas, she left that and came back home. Um, but she, you know, stayed in contact and that particular night. She went out to work and then she w- was coming home, but she met up with um, a girl girlfriend from school that had moved to Melbourne and was back for the weekend mm. and they were to meet at Soden's around about 12. That's another pub. Yeah, when she knocked off at work from the commercial hotel. So she knocked off work and then OJ talked her into going to the termo, have a drink, and she said, no, I've got to get to Soden's because I'm meeting up with Lisa. Mm. So she went and had one drink with OJ and then started walking and, and OJ said, no, 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 wait, I'll just finish this and, you know, come with you. So from your perspective, though, you weren't expecting her home. Is that what you're saying? I was expecting her home. Okay. So, June, you so, were expecting her home. Yes, yeah. because, yeah, she said, you know, I'll be, unless I've had too much to drink and then I'll just stay at uh, Wilson Street. So but, that's, I mean, she's 19 years old. So, you know, and you're it's a small town and, and you guys know the town like the back of your mm. hands and you know everyone in town pretty much and all that. So if Kim doesn't come home, I know That's she's fine. at Wilson Street. Yeah, yeah. it's not a, yeah. it's not no. a big worry. And Soden's is opposite the house they were in. Yeah, well, so she she out. left, and OJ then tried to find her. Yeah, and Kim walked one way. OJ went the other way, mm. and OJ blames himself because if he had gone the way she went, and you know whatever. So but, OJ's a mate. Yep. So it's not like you're sitting up, June, waiting for you got you guys yeah. have gone off to bed. Yeah. So oh, I leave the front hall light on. Mm. If I get up during the night and it's still on, like 5 o'clock, I'll turn it off and then go back to bed. Mm. So I got up at 6, light's still on, turned it off, went back to bed. That's fine. She's at Wilson Street. Yeah. So I think it was a 800-metre walk, not even that, from the Termo to Soden's. Five-minute walk. So OJ, is it? OJ, yeah. OJ's just one of those things. He's just gone a different way. Mm. Who was the first person to raise the alarm through that night and say, hey, where's Kim, actually? She's meant to be here. Who was the first person to notice? I don't know. We don't know. Of the kids. We don't know of the kids. We don't know. I don't know because of the kids, Kim was home. They thought she was home at yours. Mm. You thought she was was at at Wilson Wilson Street. Street. So no panic. Mm. Yeah. So it was really wasn't until the detectives knocked on our door. Oh. That we knew. And apparently it was on the radio before, but I never had the radio on. Saturday morning I lay in bed and read the paper. So, yeah, the first was when they knocked on the door. Oh. And you answered, Bob? Hmm. I was funny. I was about to walk out the door, um, go and play golf. Routine on Saturday morning, I'd call in the office on the way to see if there was any faxes. No emails in those days. Yeah. <laughs> Just to see if there's anything that came in overnight. So it basically was briefcase in hand. I was going out the door and three coppers standing at the door. Inst- instantly recognised them as coppers. Yeah. And thought, first thought was, what's Graham done? Because oh. Graham wasn't living in at home that stage. He'd moved in with a mate or mates. That was my first reaction. And how old's Graham? Older or younger? Two years younger. Okay, Graham's 17, getting around town with the mates. Yeah, okay, so what's Graham done? Um, yeah, so it was, can we, you know, you, you Mr Meredith, can we come in? And we believe your daughter was murdered. Oh or a girl was murdered, we believe it's Kim. Can, then they asked, could I have, did I have a recent photo? And stupidly enough, in the lounge room where they were seated, heaps of photos of Kim. 
at the rush down to her bedroom to get one she'd stuck on her closet door. It was her 18th birthday. Brought that out. First one looked at it and shook his head to the sergeant in charge and then the second one shook his head. We believe it's Kim. Would you like to go and get your wife so we can tell her? Mm. <laughs> that's, um, that's when the nightmare started. So I went and got, well, first of all, I went down passageway to get June. She'd seen the guys come in thinking they were business associates. Went down, sort of signalled to her, get dressed and come out. She didn't appear for about five minutes, so I went back again. She just thought I was saying, it's okay, you know. <clears throat> so then she came out at the teller. Mm. Which, um, not the best moment in our lives. No. I don't think I'd believe it. No. Um, didn't. No. Until we saw her in the morgue. Yeah. Every time the door opened. Yeah. <clears throat> Is that the next step then? Do they ask you to come and <clears throat> identify? Um, Mar- good friends, Mary and Jim, said they'd go and do it. And I said, no, yeah, I have to. Mm. So that wasn't until About three o'clock. Three o'clock. Oh, I thought they'd take you straight there. So what no, happened? No, so, still on the scene. So they found the boat okay. and, yeah, until probably, um, Belinda said probably until about 12 or one, 2 o'clock. Because they have to bring there. homicide detectives from Sydney, I guess, mm. if Belinda was there. Mm. And Belinda the up, forensic yeah. pathologists from Sydney. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, no, uh, they no. didn't have to... Didn't have to um, they had their forensic guy. They had their guy. own forensic guy in town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Belinda came down with one of her mates. Okay. Um, to help I, with the investigations, yeah. Just yeah. from an investigation point of view. Mm. The, one of the policemen who eventually had to leave, he was the forensic guy. He did. He had the, see. Yep. the nasty job. Mm. Yep. Um, and that's why I said to Belinda, and that's why, yeah, she said it didn't help, June, with you, your comments and becoming friends is, you know, she sat there, how long did she sit there for and why couldn't I go and just hold a hand or do whatever? And um, Blenda said, oh, oh, you couldn't, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I oh, know, but why so long? I mean, the body was discovered at 2, 2.30, so 12 hours later mm. she's then transported, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I really hear what yeah. you're saying, June, about yeah. wanting to go and hold her hand. Yeah. Say, so, um, yeah. Why couldn't I just go there and sit there? Yeah, and not touch any evidence or anything. But yeah, but just care for her. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. I totally get that. Yeah. So you couldn't, you weren't allowed to. So you had to wait at home, I guess. At home and just yeah, until so we saw the body. You phoned friends, I guess. Is that what happens oh. when the police tell you? And initially uh, at home, you phoned people for support to I come and. I rang um, good friend Mary, and she came around. Yep. Yeah. I first call I made was to our GP. Yes. Because I knew she was going to need help. Good idea. Yes. And um, he was a golfing buddy as well. He was a, a friend of the family. His wife was also a friend of uh, Jones. And um, he was out his morning jog before going to the golf course. So anyway, his wife eventually got him, and he came straight around. Uh, I. Then rang my brother in Perth 
told him the bad news and asked him if he would tell June's family, um, particularly June's father. But I said, and June's instruction, quite rightly, Tom wasn't to be told uh, on the phone. So um, my brother contacted um, June's eldest sister and she rang all other members of the family, except Faye, who was living in London, said, we are meeting at Dad's place. I've got something important for you. Not telling them. And so she handled June's side of the family. And my only other sibling was my sister that lived in Colac. Mm -hmm. uh, and she was married to a, a United Church minister. So I rang her and she... She arrived on the Sunday afternoon. He obviously had church services on the Sunday morning, so she was up the next day. My brother arrived the same day. It was on that Saturday. The first thing he did was... From Perth? Yeah, get, get on, found the nearest plane. Great. Regardless of, you know. Yep. Yeah, I can't remember the times. I, I can't believe you can remember anything. Oh, no, I had to ask afterwards. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. <coughs> I, I can't remember the day. I just asked afterwards. Mm. All I remember is sitting around waiting, going to the mall, coming home, walking in, saying, it's Kim. I got a pen and paper. I sat down outside on the step and wrote. Yeah. Mm. It's like, yeah. <coughs> Do you still have that piece of paper, what you wrote? Uh, it's in the newspaper. So it was a death notice. I mean, how stupid. No. But that's what I did. I sat down and thought, I have to write something. Yeah, that's not stupid. Mm. I mean, I think you just got to do what you got to do. Well, right? that's what the brain said. Mm. So that's what I did. Mm. Mm. But yeah. So this is all in the book, so people can yeah. We're being fairly open. Well, I have, except uh, the last day we ever spent together, no one knows at all, and that will never be told, um, because that's between her and I. But. The rest of feelings, emotions, um, yeah, pretty open. Wow, that's interesting. Mm. The last day you spent together that you don't want anyone to know about. Mm. And I don't know about it. No one has ever, I've never heard I anyone else I've, do that um, before. The detectives asked and I said, told a little bit, but no one knows exactly our whole day and we had the whole day. Wow. So it's, yeah. They did go and call to see Graham. Oh, I said that because that's just yeah, normal yeah. thing, yeah. <laughs> but, um, and, and we called in on the Friday to see him and he wasn't home. Yeah. But, yeah, I told them that. But the personal stuff between us and other little things we did, they're mine. That's so wonderful because, look, I could, I'm could i being presumptuous, but you're whirling around Albury. Like, I, I'm imagining nothing earth-shattering happened, and I might be wrong, mm. but... What a lovely, just intimate thing to keep mm. to yourself. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Mm. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, I say, um, pretty open. I think the the weird, wonderful thing about the book, I've never read it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. Um, I was um, editing for Bob with English and commas and yeah. sort of stuff, yeah. which um, I enjoy. And then after a while, it's kind of like, I can't do this anymore, Bob. It's, it's yours. I'm really pleased you're writing the book because when he started it, that was, to me, the way he got rid of his grief. Yep. That kept him occupied. He got involved with the, the law system, how long it took. 
Um, and that's the one thing we're bringing out in the book as well, mm-hmm. what Kim was like, our emotions, and why did it take seven years mm. to have finalisation. But then we still haven't got finalisation because he's now under the Mental Health Act. Mm. We can't talk about him after 2003. Mm. We can talk about him before. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. For 2003? We can mention his name. Okay. Before, we can't mention his name now, which is... And we, we definitely can't speak of the work that the Mental Health Review Tribunal... Wow. The, the, um, we have contact with them, but we can't really report on it. And we can't say where he is. We know where he is. Yes. So if we told you where he is, yes. we could go to jail? Yes, yes. Yeah, we've had this conversation with other families before, yeah. Bob's book about Kim's murder and the subsequent trials and hearings, with June's words sprinkled throughout, doesn't have a publisher yet. He's thinking about self-publishing, but we can certainly help any interested parties get in touch with the Merediths. Just send us a message through Facebook or through our website, australiantruecrimepodcast.com. After the break, we'll learn more about the investigation into Kim's murder with the lead homicide officer, Belinda Neal. Coming up on Australian True Crime, some very real examples of the ways in which cases can come back to haunt investigators later. But first, Belinda Neal, 
who is now an author, public speaker and advocate for PTSD sufferers, was in 1996 a member of the New South Wales Police Force and a homicide detective. She was the lead investigator in the Kim Meredith case and it changed her life. Belinda joins us now to talk about the experience. I got a call from one of my bosses at the homicide unit to say there had been a murder down in Albury. So this was the morning of the 23rd of March and it was the murder of a beautiful young girl called Kim Meredith. She was only 19 at the time. And we went to the crime scene straight away. So this was in the dark. The crime scene um, was in a small car park behind an office building. And the first thing I noticed, what I was aware of, is this beautiful young girl had been killed in this car park and she had been found naked except for some socks sitting underneath a, a light in the car park. When we got there, I saw a large pool of blood in the car park and the thing that struck me as very odd about this straight away is that we had been told that her throat had been cut, um, slashed so severely it severed major arteries. So there should have been a blood spray pattern, but there wasn't. So the theory that we had at that particular time is that she had been healed down like an animal in an abattoir, so the blood would simply just pour out straight down on the ground. She was... There was then... I saw a figure of eight pattern in the car park, a figure of eight pattern through the blood. And what had happened is she'd been taken behind a lattice screen in the car park. Her clothes had been removed except for her socks and they were thrown here, there and everywhere around the area. And then she'd been brought back and, and sat underneath that light. We actually went to the morgue at Aubrey Base Hospital and that's where I saw Kim Meredith's body. And I remember seeing her body and it's really, it it gets very difficult. You just cannot fathom what one human being can do to another human being. He was this beautiful young girl, really a bad uh, wound to her neck, her pale face, there was leaf litter in her hair. There's that sense of innocence that's been taken away. And I remember, oh, here we go. This was actually probably the murder that affected me the most. Yeah. But I remember saying to myself, it's just a body, the spirit has left the body. It's just a body, the spirit has left the body. Anyhow, the next day um, we were working with Albury detectives in relation to this. Albury detectives were in charge of the homicide investigation. And I remember... Well, I thought it was a bit of an odd question because with homicide investigations, there is always somebody who is nominated to to keep in touch with the victim's family and, and keep them up to date. And it was one of the Aubrey detectives. Thought what was an odd question is, I hadn't met the parents at this stage, but Kim's mother, June, had asked how long her child had lain naked and alone at the crime scene. It seemed to me odd at the time, and I didn't actually get the significance of it until much later. I was, what, 27 years old, didn't have any children myself. Now, in terms of the crime scene, we really, um, we started to get, again, in the first 48 hours of the homicide investigation, we get an absolute influx of information, and it's really, really important. And we got a lot of information about a, a man named Graham Males. 
Now, he used to be a local man in Albury, but he was living in Forbes at this particular time with his aunt. And some of the information that we got in relation to him was a witness had come forward to say that in the early hours of the morning, he had asked for help in trying to use a credit card in uh, one of the ATM machines. We later found out that Kim Meredith's credit card had been used at those two times and the same amounts of money, which the witness told us Grain Mails um, had requested, he had tried to get from Kim Meredith's account. We also had some information from one of the local men's shelters in Albury that they had seen Graham in a very agitated state and he was covered in blood. Now, Graham had a criminal history of assault and also carrying a knife. So it was really imperative with this information that started to come in. He became our number one suspect. So at 9.30 that night, we drove to Falls where he was living. At high speed, it took us about three and a half hours, I think, to get there. And the next morning, very early the next morning, with the local detectives at Forbes, we went and executed a search warrant at his aunt's address. Now, at the address, we found a pile of clothes and some of those clothes, jeans and a shirt, had blood on it, which we later identified as Kim Meredith's blood. Now, with identifying and, and analysing blood, we don't have, at that particular time, we don't have the option of being able to, you know, click our fingers and get those results straight away. It can take some days and even weeks um, to have blood analysed. So he was taken back to the police station. He was interviewed. He said he was with his girlfriend that night in Albury. Blood and hair samples were taken from him. And, and little things that you actually remember. I remember watching hair samples, like some hair being plucked out of his head and him wincing, you know, in pain at that. And I'm putting my mind to the beautiful body of Kim Meredith and thinking, you've just inflicted such horrific pain on her and you're wincing at a couple of hair samples. His socks and joggers were taken and there was blood on the actual joggers and later they that was found to, to be identified as Kim Meredith and also the footprints from the joggers. There were footprints in blood at the scene and those footprints were identified to his actual joggers. We also found a lock knife, um, which he had purchased in Albury, and a guest watch, which we later identified it as Kim Meredith's watch. He was allowed to leave because we couldn't, um, we couldn't identify these at the time and we didn't have any blood results at this age. So one of the main things for us was we desperately needed results from the blood matches. So my partner and I drove to Lincoln, which was 350 kilometres away. We actually drove there the next day and we had exhibits like the lock knife. We had the guest watch with us just to see if we could get some sort of analysis or some blood from that. Then drove, we dropped the exhibits off there and we drove back to Albury. So again, we're talking a six-hour drive. And then on the 28th of March... We did a, what we call a video runaround with Graham Mailed. Those involved in the runaround were obviously investigating police, um, myself and my partner, um, Graham and Graham's aunt. Now, Graham was very street smart, but he did suffer an intellectual disability, and that's why we had his aunt with us at a particular time. And in the video runaround, we went to various places in Albury where he said he had been, including where he's supposed girlfriend lived and some other places. And by the time we got to the car park, which was the last place, this is where the 
Kim's body had been found, there was a lot of media there. And look, media can be a wonderful tool in, in, for investigators, but on this particular occasion, it wasn't a good thing because Gray became spooked with all the, all the media attention. So it wasn't good. The girlfriend who Graham had nominated that he had stayed with, she was interviewed and said she hadn't seen him in over a year. So Graham was interviewed again at the police station at this time. Um, There was a lot of holes in his story. We could show other things. We could show where his story wasn't right. And when he was told he was going to be charged with Kim's murder, he became very agitated. He actually punched the lead investigator and it took a number of police to try and restrain him. But he was then charged with the murder of Kim Meredith. We had enough information at this point in time to charge him. And, of course, we had the blood results. They came through as well. Now, about seven or eight days later, I got a phone call from Aubrey saying, at this stage, Brain had been transferred to Long Bay Correctional Centre in Sydney and he was in the hospital area, which was which is, which is a maximum security situation, and he wanted to be interviewed. He wanted police to come and interview him. So I took a, a senior investigator from the homicide unit with me. We took a portable recording machine, and we went out and I interviewed Gray Males. Now, that interview went for two and a half hours, and basically Males... What Gray Males was saying was that he didn't do it, but he knew who did it. He basically said he saw his mate Tony do it. He saw exactly what happened. I must have asked him, and this is not particularly professional, and I think it's probably due to my state of mind, about 10 times about which way his mate was holding Kim when he had killed her. We then went back down to Albury because there was a number of um, clues that Graham had given us. For example, what we had to do was obviously find this Tony and see if we could verify Graham's story, because Graham at one stage, for an example, is how did Graham come to have blood all, like him, Meredith's blood all over his clothes, because when he was out with his mate Tony, Tony was wearing shorts and couldn't get into a nightclub, so Graham lent Tony his clothes even though their sizes were very different and Graham climbed into one of the St. Vincent bins to get another pair of clothes and he put those on. But, of course, after the murder, Graham wanted his clothes back. So there were situations like this which, even though they seem nonsensical when you look at them, you still have to prove, go ahead and show that it is nonsensical. We went to every single St. Vincent's bin or clothing bin in Albury to check which ones could be climbed into, which ones couldn't be climbed into. We found Tony. Now, Tony was an intellectually disabled man as well. We could show through taxi records. We went through all the taxi records for that particular time that showed that he and his girlfriend, who was also intellectually disabled, together that particular night, and his carer, Tony's carer, could also provide evidence in relation to that. So Tony was exonerated. But this was the street smart that... Grave Nails had to actually go through the evidence and come up with these alibis. Now, we went to committal hearing in December 1996, and this is the first time I actually met Kim's parents, June and Bob, and they are the most beautiful, down-to-earth people. And I think it is, for I think anyone who hasn't been through this, we just cannot 
even consider the indescribable agony they must have been going through. They sat through and listened to all the evidence. So they're listening to the evidence about their daughter, the way she's been murdered, and they're sitting in there with their daughter's killer. This must be so difficult. I can't even begin to, to, to imagine what that must be like. So Graham was then committed to stand for trial. Three years later, we had a fitness to stand for trial. And this is effectively when someone, if someone is intellectually disabled, a judge has to determine if that person can be found to be mentally fit to stand trial, whether they can understand the legal proceedings and the evidence, and whether they can give appropriate instructions to their, to their lawyer. He was found fit to go to trial. So we went to trial. I recall being in the witness box where my interview with Graham was played. I couldn't even look at June and Bob. I couldn't stand to see the look of pain in their faces. I actually met them for a drink after I gave evidence. I took them and shouted a drink, and it was really just to apologise for the pain that I was putting them through, having to listen to my record of interview. Now, in 99, Males was found guilty of Kim's murder, and he got a minimum of 18 years, so a maximum of 25 years. In 2001, and the reason why I'm telling you this is because this is when it starts to get ridiculous and about what the family actually had to go through. In 2001, the Court of Criminal Appeal overturned the decision based on Males' fitness and a new trial was ordered. So we then had a second fitness hearing and Males was found unfit to stand trial. But in 2003, there was a third fitness hearing and Justice James Wood found him fit to stand trial. This was now seven years since the murder. So Kim's parents, June and Bob, have already had to sit through one committal, three fitness hearings and two trials. So six court matters. They have had to go through and listen to all this, all the evidence in terms of their daughter. Now, after the second trial, he was also found guilty, 25-year maximum sentence. And I went and had drinks with Bob and June in their, this was held in Sydney this time, at Wagga, like the first trial. And I went back to the apartment that Bob and June had and had some drinks with them. And June brought out a photo album. Yeah. And the one, the one thing she said to me, and at this stage I was a mother, and I also had a daughter and two children, have two children. She said she wished she could have held Kim's hand during the crime scene examination. As a mother, I absolutely understood the need for her to comfort her child. But as a police officer, I'd been trained to put preservation of crime scene first. What was happening to me at the moment was that the time that I was spending with with, with June and Bob basically humanised Kim to me to the point where I couldn't emotionally distance myself from the images of her body. And this is what really started to affect me in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder. It was very, very difficult. I started, I was getting horrendous flashbacks and intrusive thoughts of Kim, of her, her body. It was affecting me in terms of my children. I recall having a, a horrendous flashback of Kim crawling towards me on her hands and knees with her arms stretched out, asking for help. 
these are the sorts of images uh, we get as part of post-traumatic stress disorder. Really, really difficult. This was the probably the worst case because I couldn't keep myself. As police officers, we try and emotionally distance ourselves from some of the horrendous things that we've seen. But what we as police officers forget sometimes is we're actually human beings as well and we care. This is why we're in the job that we actually do. And this is why I feel for all police officers who have to, or ambulance and fire, anyone who has to go to these sorts of scenes, just horrendous. And how will you deal with this experience now later today? Because this is obviously <laughs> difficult for you. So what's your regime after, after you put yourself through this today? I'm in a fortunate position. I do have some very good management tools and I do know that something like this will affect me. I have no plans for today after this conversation and it's quite simply because I need to allow myself some time out to recover. I will be going for a walk after this conversation with my partner and that is to help clear my head in relation to it. If you go down the path where you then try and block it out, it's not going to work. Mm. But I will talk to him about our conversation and we will go for a walk so I can clear my head. But I'm actually going to have some downtime today. Mm-hmm. With anything difficult like this, you cannot just pile up and, and have appointments or try and do things. And, and I think we spoke earlier, I was going to talk about it last week and I had my son's, I was organising my son's 21st yeah. birthday. There is no way in the world I could have this conversation with you and then prepare and be in a good frame of mind for my son's 21st. And that's why I really appreciate that we've we've had this conversation a week later. Well, I thought it was a really great example that you set for me and for everyone as well to just be really sensible about that sort of thing. I find you and Narelle both really great examples in that way. And I think it's so sensible to prioritise our lives the way you do. You've learnt to do things this way, to say to yourselves, you know what, that is going to be really difficult for me and I want to spend today working on my son's 21st. And so if I can push that job to later, I'm going to. And even the way that you set today up and say to me, I tell you what, Michelle, I can do it Saturday because I know that afterwards I've got time to then help myself to get over it. I thought, great example. Thank you, Belinda. Yeah. Well, thank you, Michelle. Yeah, I think we, we, we really do. We have to look after ourselves. And I think there's another point. And if something does happen, which is out of our control, for example, we're, we're triggered by something, whether it's a, the, the death of somebody or if I might say the Australian Federal Police at the moment and the suicide. Mm. Understand if you have PTSD, it is very, very normal to be triggered by something like that. So if suddenly you're feeling worse, you're upset, you're feeling very low, that is very, very normal. So go and talk to somebody. That's Belinda Neal talking about her work on the Kim Meredith murder investigation. You can read about it and other cases in Belinda's book, Under Siege, which you can buy in our bookshop. Just go to the website, australiantruecrime.com. Our gratitude to Bob and June Meredith for their generosity. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.